Good morning, y'all. This is Bud Elliott of the Knollcast, and this will be a solo episode this morning before Ingram and I return with a, uh, a joint episode for National Signing Day. But we have a lot of questions to get to from our Patreon members. That's patreon.com slash Knollcast, and I figured we should get to these and give you something to listen to on a Monday morning. So before we do, quick want to shout out our sponsors here, Louisiana Hot Sauce, Madison Social, by the way, we have some excellent spring game plans coming for MADSO. Resolution Home Loans, 844-FSU-LOAN. And, of course, Travis Johnson, attorney at law of the Metter and Johnson Law Firm. Travis is a board-certified family law expert. You can reach him, 850-435-9919. We, of course, appreciate you supporting our sponsors and helps keep the show free. And, uh, of course, if you want to get a question answered on the show, uh, you can still email us, nolcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter, at nolcast. But the best way, uh, because we do look at them first, uh, is via the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash nolcast. So let's go ahead and jump into this here. Not sure how long this episode will be. But, uh, yeah, if you guys have questions and you're already Patreon members, and we have a decent number now, uh, please do make sure to put the questions in on the page, and we always check that page first. So, Patrick asks, While Louisiana Hot Sauce brings the heat, FSU football has failed to do so on the recruiting trail the last few years. Even Honey Fried Chicken and a Mad So Reuben aren't enough to move the needle, it seems. And Travis Johnson himself might not be able to modify visitation rights enough for us to see any five stars on campus. If you had to bet your resolution mortgage in a four-tier system for recruiting, where does FSU currently rank? And how long before we can expect to be back in Tier 1? Or Tier 2, if we've fallen into Tier 3? Elaborate. So I, I thought this was a fun question to lead off with here. And I think it's a it's one where my, uh, my answer is going to be fairly positive, which I know listeners always like because we're not afraid to go negative at times. Uh, so I, I thought about it. And I said, okay, what, what would Tier 1 of recruiting be? And, and this is actually a topic that I've debated with some, some fellow recruiting analysts at the uh, the Army All-America game, and everybody agrees Clemson would be up there, Ohio State would be up there, Alabama's up there, LSU probably because of this year, and not just once they started winning, but because of what they did last offseason as far as staffing up and, and really making the decision to to become a major player out of state as well. LSU's there, and of course, Georgia's there. To, to me, those are, are your five Um that are really true tier one recruiters at the moment. And what does tier one mean and why do you cut it off there? Well, to me, tier one is this team is contending for the number one overall class. And I think you're kind of hard pressed to make an argument for that for any other team, at least over the past few years. Those are your teams that for the most part have, have brought the number one class and this year, those were the teams that really contended uh, for it. So I, I do think that that's your number one number one tier. Tier two was a little bit more interesting to me. I, I thought about this and I said, okay, what 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 do you define tier two as? And I kind of think tier two is, hey, if you hit it out of the park, you can have a top five class. I think that's fair, and I, I think I found some delineation there, uh, and so that's that's what I went ahead and went with. So. I have Texas A&M, Auburn, Florida, Oklahoma, Michigan, 
Oregon, Penn State, Washington, Notre Dame, Texas. And I do think Florida State belongs in there. Now, you might say that's crazy. They're 20th right now. That's true. However, and they really have not you know, had, had a top five class the last couple of years either. Also fair. But they are doing about the best of anybody that has a, a, new, um, a new coaching staff right now. Washington is ahead of them, but Washington had a continuity hire, a promotion from within via Jimmy Lake. Florida State has the highest recruiting class of anybody who had made an actual coaching change where you have a new coach come in from the outside. And you might say, yeah, but, like, I mean, how many elite kids did this staff actually bring in, you know, once once the hire was made? And that, that's fair. Not many. I mean, they, they've, they've mostly just added a bunch of three stars, and that's that's a fair criticism. But I do think if you look at the hires they've made, most of the hires look pretty solid. Uh, we know that Mike Norvell got his first choice or one of his top choices for each position that, that he hired. Um, obviously, he's lost one since then at defensive backs coach. But it's not crazy to me to think that if Florida State hits it out of the park, that they could have a top five class. Uh, I, I don't think that I would put them down in, in, in Tier 3. Uh, tier 3 to me is basically like if you really, really hit it out of the park, you could have like a top 10 or 15 class. Uh, there's a couple interesting cuts here that, that, I, that I had to make uh, and for, for Tier 2. Do you include Tennessee in that? Like, can you really see Tennessee having a top five class? I, I don't know. I mean, this Tennessee, uh, they just took this most recent class. They have 20, 21 commits. They're, they're going to add one or two more. But this is the, the third class for Jeremy Pruitt and his second uh, full class. And they're 14th. This is Miami's first full class. Miami was the other cut in this group that I kind of had to make. I wasn't sure if they're really going to contend. Like, is their ceiling really a top five class? Um, I don't know. This is Miami. This is Manny Diaz's first full class, and they're at 21 commits, and they sit 17th nationally. Now, I, I do really like the, the, the top kids in that, in that Miami class, but they've also signed a bunch of kids who, you know, don't stand out. Um, kind of like Florida State has. But Florida State is in a transition year, and Miami is not. So I, I don't know. Do you want to include those two schools in, in Tier 2 at this point? How would you define their ceiling? To me, I think Florida State belongs in that Tier 2 uh, if you want to make Tier 1 just those five schools. So that that's something to me that that makes sense. I, I'd love y'all's feedback on that, depending on what you think. I, I, I don't think that they've fallen to Tier 3 at this point. I didn't make an official Tier 3, because then I, if I do, I have to make an official uh, Tier 4. But to me, if I had it just kind of off the top of my head, you're like Kentucky's, Wisconsin's, Nebraska, Stanford, both the Carolinas, you know, Utah, Georgia Tech, Mississippi State, Purdue, Iowa, TCU, schools like that. Um, the, the, the Mississippi schools as well are, are the schools that I would I would probably put in that in that tier three. Okay, great question there. So let's go ahead and this question is from Patrick. Patrick, thank you for being, or excuse me, from Jimmy Lee rather. Jimmy, thank you for being a Patreon supporter of ours. Uh, Jimmy asks, when either of you discuss recruiting defensive tackles in the Southeast, 
You often mention that they need a little more incentive, quote unquote, to go out of state. I agree D-line is important, but is there any reason you seem to stress the need for big bags to get their commitment more than the other four and five star positions like top quarterbacks or offensive linemen? I see people in Jacksonville wearing Madison social shirts all the time. Awesome. There we go. We're getting these organic sponsor shout outs in these questions. That's, that's fantastic. Now, every time I see him, I think of this pod. Jimmy, we appreciate the question. Uh, so look, this is a, a complex answer uh, in some ways that I'm not going to get into. But here's the, I think you'll understand why, but here's the real, the real answer. There are elite defensive linemen and offensive linemen, or excuse me, there are elite offensive linemen and quarterbacks, just to use the two other positions that you use as an example, Jimmy, in every region, right? There are elite quarterbacks in the Northeast. There are elite offensive linemen in the Midwest and out West and in the Northeast and in the Southeast. But in terms of depth of position, how many elite defensive linemen do you have? That's where the, that's where this gap really shows up. Other regions do not produce elite defensive linemen like the Southeast does. And th- thus, the, you have a position scarcity thing. It's almost like, do you all play fantasy baseball or, or fantasy football? There's, there's the idea of position scarcity. In fantasy football, with, with fewer backs getting just a ton of carries, right, and, and more, more and more committee-style uh, running back approach being used in the NFL, if you can get a back who actually is a really big-time volume guy, well, that's very valuable. The defensive linemen are sort of the same way. Your, your, your drop-off there at that position is, is pretty stark, and you just don't have other regions where those kids are, uh, are really available. And if you recall, this is sort of one of the reasons why people say Bob Stoops wanted to stay retired, is that he did not want to have to play that Southeastern recruiting game, but yet uh, it was understood at Oklahoma that if they were going to get back to the top, that they would have to start, start start playing that game a little bit to get those elite defensive linemen because they, they weren't really coming out of the region that Oklahoma traditionally recruited in the same numbers. And in fact, um, on Banner Society, I wrote a story about this this year uh, as far as California and how there's a complete lack of elite defensive tackles in the state of California this year. That's a huge problem for the Pac-12 because the state of California really does sustain that conference's recruiting probably as much as any state sustains a conference, uh, with the possible exception of Texas sustaining the Big 12. But even then, I think I would give the nod to Cali and the Pac-12 there. So yeah, that, that's that's the, the main answer on that. Um, I also w- would tell you that I think on average, your quarterback's oftentimes are a little more potentially swayed by academics and whatnot. For instance, Stanford will pull a five-star quarterback out of the Southeast. Stanford is not going to pull, for the most part, a five-star defensive tackle out of the Southeast. I don't know why that is, but it just it does seem like sometimes quarterbacks will pick schools like truly based on academics or, or some of those type of factors. Okay, Christian asks, out of the five commitments that Coach Norvell has landed over the past two weeks, which one or two do you think will have the highest ceiling slash most likely to outperform their current ranking? Okay, so let me uh, just clarify this real fast. The last two weeks uh, would be since the early signing period, so we're only talking about the, 
the kids who are currently verbally committed and not the players who Coach Norvell and his staff signed uh, during the early signing period. So with that in mind, I'll go ahead and say uh, Marcus and Douglas. Uh, Douglas is a really interesting prospect to me. The frame is just absolutely huge. I think the athleticism is pretty solid. We know Michigan State offered Douglas, um, and there were a couple other big-time schools sort of sniffing around him. I have a feeling that Coach Norvell and his staff knew about this kid at Memphis and probably just kind of kept an eye on him. He was a basketball player. His rating right now is very low. Uh, It's a .84, so you're talking a guy who is going to be, what, outside the top 1,000 prospects for sure in the nation. And uh, I think he definitely has the potential to outperform, uh, outperform that rating just because of his frame. And, and there's so many different positions this guy could end up at. He, he has some basketball athleticism. You have to teach him. Thus, the, the floor is probably pretty low, right? You have no idea if he'll become a good player. I mean, the, that's why it, it's, it's a pure upside play. We discussed this in the last podcast a little bit, too, of, yes, we, we know that, that transition classes typically in the early signing period era are not good classes and that a lot of these kids that you guys are excited about right now aren't going to turn out to do a damn thing, and most of them, not most, but uh, maybe half of them won't even make it to their junior years. You know, now I, I hopefully you, that changes. Hopefully that, that, that normalizes a little bit with the early signing period era becoming more of a, a, a known quantity at this point. But Douglas, I think, is a player who really has the chance to outperform his rating and, and have one of the higher ceilings in the class, I, I I truly believe. Now, of course, a low floor, too. He could be an offensive tackle. He could be a defensive tackle. He could be a jumbo end. I mean, he could maybe be a, a hybrid tight end type player. We, we don't know. He's just so big, and the, the frame and the athleticism is a pretty pretty uh, intriguing combination there. Also, have Corey Wren, uh, who's sort of a receiver-slash-running-back combo the reason I'm going to pick Wren is because he's he's not a four-star player. He's outside the top 450 right now. If you give me that kind of speed, I do think there's a chance that just with that, he could hit enough home runs and big plays for you to potentially outperform his rating. So if I had to pick two, uh, to me, Douglas is the obvious one just because of the, I think the ceiling is high enough and his rating is low enough uh, to outperform. And then Wren... Probably has a little bit better chance to outperform, but probably not by the same margin that Douglas might, just because Douglas's rating uh, is so low currently. So we appreciate that question from our Patreon supporter, Christian. Okay, Patreon supporter Dave asks, uh, I would understand if you don't want to, excuse me, rather, I would understand if you wanted to wait until after signing day to speak on this. But my question is, I was wondering if you could compare the recruiting prowess of Norvell to Jimbo Fisher. How good of a recruiter was Jimbo really? What kind of results can FSU fans reasonably expect moving forward with Norvell? My impression at the time, around 2010, was that Jimbo was an elite recruiter. Do you feel this is the case? And do you feel Norvell has a similar level of ability? Truly, time will tell with this aspect of Norvell, but what are your early impressions? Okay, uh, and then he also asks that. Uh, I text. Sorry, what what else he asks is a little side note uh, to us, but he, but he's very interested in uh, our thoughts on Norvell 
as a recruiter. Okay, so starting their years as Florida State head coach, I would give the recruiting edge to Jimbo Fisher for a couple reasons. Number one, Fisher had done so at the Power 5 level, which is one of the questions that we had about Coach Norvell. Um, that's not to say we think that he doesn't understand how to play the game. I think he probably does, and he has enough assistants who have been on big-time staffs as well and has had assistants from Memphis go on to those big-time staffs, and I'm sure they chat. So I, I think he gets it. However, getting it and doing it is a little bit different. So I would give that check mark uh, to a young Jimbo Fisher. We were talking about 10 years ago, right? I mean, uh, different motivations there, a really, really focused Jimbo Fisher uh, who had been an assistant for three years. So he had unlimited, relative to head coaching stuff, unlimited visitation really as an assistant and was able to build up relationships with all these high school coaches. And if you recall at the time, that was one of the number one reasons why he, it made sense to hire him as a head coach when Florida State did because he could keep the recruiting class intact and add to it because you had Bobby Bowden, who was very old at the time, it still is, obviously, but um, you know, for a head coach standards, Bowden was was quite old and uh, was not doing much recruiting at the time. Jimbo was really sort of trying to run the recruiting there with some interference from some assistant coaches who I think history shows us did not end up doing anything after they left Florida State. But Jimbo had had an idea how to do it because he had been on Saban's staff, which was uh, I think a real advantage. But the biggest advantage he had was that he he was the head coach in waiting. So he was able to go out and see all those players as like when they were sophomores and juniors and hit the ground running. He was also a very good recruiter, figuring out kind of who was the important person that you had to make sure that you had on, on your side in the recruitment and uh, and, and leverage those contacts and, uh, and family relationships there. I don't know that Coach Norvell is, uh, is as good a recruiter as Jimbo was at this point in their careers. However, I will note that, A, uh, they made a rule, so you cannot do what Jimbo did prior, at least not formally. Like You can't be the head coach in waiting anymore and still take visits to prospects like an assistant coach did. So um, from that standpoint, obviously, it's, it's not really apples to apples. You're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, I don't have any reason to believe that Norvell's a bad recruiter by any stretch. I think he'll probably be a, a pretty damn good recruiter for Florida State. The early returns have been pretty solid as far as getting a decent number of big-time kids on campus. Certainly, uh, if you're emailing us and asking us about the comparison to Clemson or LSU or Bama or Georgia, no. But that's not something that will likely uh, happen overnight. I'll also note that I, I think the Norvell's ability to hire assistants has has some real promise. And, and I, I think if he can identify coaching talent, he can probably also identify recruiting talent. And I would have to think that he has done so in this first staff, at least to a certain extent, and that they'll probably do pretty well there. Okay, uh, Josh asks, do you think the staff will sign a consensus five-star recruit in its first full year of recruiting? So not this class that it's about to sign in 48 hours, but rather um, the first full year of recruiting, which would be the class of 2021. 
he also asks, do you believe new coaching staffs will get a first-year recruiting boost from the excitement and intrigue in the program? This seemed to be true before the early signing period era. However, as you have mentioned numerous times, the early signing period accelerated the recruiting calendar, thus allowing established coaching staffs a head start in the next recruiting cycle while leaving new coaching staff scrambling to build relationships. You know, this is actually something that I am very interested in studying um, once I get access to a little bit more data, hopefully soon. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in seeing this. And granted, we're only a couple of years into this, so I, I don't know if we can truly measure it yet. But yeah, I, I think, A, I do think Florida State will sign a five-star in the 2021 class. Now, consensus, I don't know how we're defining consensus, but composite five-star on, on, on the 24-7 sports composite, yeah, I, I definitely think that is possible. Um, as far as the first full-year bump, I do believe that still exists, certainly, unless you just totally flub the first season. Um, but I think there is a chance, at, at least anecdotally here, that it is slightly diminished. It used to be very pronounced, right, and everybody, everybody knew it. But now I do think that the number of prospects that that first year sort of excitement and energy wave can affect is diminished for two reasons. One, like Josh mentioned, the early signing period era means that some schools, like for instance, a Clemson has been done with their class of 2020 for probably 10, 15 weeks now for the most part and has been strongly on their 2021s already. That's why they're landing the number one player in the country as they did from California uh, last weekend. That's why they're landing, you know, one of the top defensive linemen in Florida because they've been on these relationships very early. Additionally, I think when you when you have this sort of force multiplier effect of the early visit period cycle, where kids are allowed to take official visits now in April, when you combine that with some of these schools that have been having success getting on these kids super early and having that kind of head start where a Florida State is still I don't want to say floundering, but they're still scrambling to finish out 2020, and so they're, they're not able to fully focus on 2021. And even if they were, they would still be pretty far behind the eight ball, and that's any school with a new coach, not just Florida State. Uh, I think when you combine that early recruiting window for the schools that ha are basically done with their existing class with the early visit opportunities for official visits, the ability to have kids officially visit you in March and April, that's a pretty big deal. And so I do think the number of kids who the official visits, or excuse me, who, who the early signing, excuse me, one more time. I think the number of kids who the first full year recruiting bump could affect is somewhat diminished. And so I'm interested in studying that more anecdotally. I would agree with you. All right. Uh, Donovan asks, and Donovan, thank you for being a, a Patreon supporter of us. Given Norvell's comments about not going after a graduate transfer quarterback, what are the chances that he told Purdy he would start or have a pretty good shot if he came to Florida State? At this point, Blackman has very little chance, right? Uh, well, first of all, I I don't take those comments totally at face value. Who knows? I mean, if you have a, if you have a quarterback transfer out, then your situation changes, and you could easily take a transfer quarterback if, if it's the right one. Um, I I'm of the opinion that if you have Marv and Terry coming back. Um, assuming you can get some level of blocking, which I, I think the offensive line should be a little bit better, that you probably need to try to, to, to get somebody to help you out if you don't think Blackman's the guy. But we don't know if Blackman's the guy in this system or not. Certainly, 
in the last system, he had his, his ups and downs, but I think most any quarterback would because Florida State's blocking, and I, I people people always say, you know, they're just going to talk about the offensive line. But look, if you can't block anybody, and there were four or five games where you were just physically overwhelmed at the point of attack, and it really didn't matter who you had playing quarterback. Uh, I think if Florida State can get somebody who fits, it would make sense to bring them in if Blackman leaves or or if somebody else leaves. I, I really don't think that Norvell would promise a starting job to a freshman like Brock Purdy, who is a good prospect, but he's not like a, you know, he's not one of these just no doubt quarterback prospects. He's, I mean, like, not not Brock Purdy, rather Chubb uh, Purdy. He's he's not even a top hundred kid in the country. Like, you, I don't think you promise a starting job like that. Like, there's certain kids. If Florida State was in on, on a Bryce Young or, or a DJ from this prior class or maybe a C.J. Stroud, I, I think it would make sense to, to promise a starting gig to, to like them because they could come in and do it. But I I would not promise a starting gig to Chubba Purdy. He, he's, he's not a, no-doubt, a no doubt can't miss type kid. I, I like him. I think he has a really nice ceiling and, and some four, which is helped, by the way, by his brother being a college guy and, and knowing what to expect. But no, I, I I would be very surprised if Coach Norvell promised a starting job to him. Okay, uh, Christian asks, and Christian, thank you for being a Patreon supporter. Again, if you all want to, uh, patreon.com slash Nolcast. Christian asks, is there any information to share in some of the potential facilities improvements or any changes to plans regarding that since the hiring of Norvell? Will the FOF, which is the football-only facility, be pushed back once again. I assume we can no longer count on that million-dollar pledge from Willie Taggart to get things going. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm guessing Willie Taggart's probably not still making those uh, payments on the million-dollar pledge. Well, actually, I'm not guessing. He's he's not, uh, as far as I know. So, uh, yes, I actually do have some information to share on this. Uh, they are definitely committed to not doing the option, which would just be an improvement of the Moore Center. They want their own building. They, they want their own facility. And yet they will still improve the Moore Center for the other sports. So it, it's going to be a, a pretty big project. I don't think this is going to get done in 2021, obviously. So it's it's more of a long-term project. But I do know it's a certainly a focus of Coach Norvell and his staff. Um, like that. That's something I know that they're, they're having discussions about within the building. And I know they're actively trying to figure out, okay, what do we actually need to have in this? Because if you're Florida State, you, you kind of have to moneyball this a little bit. And it doesn't mean go cheap. It just means you have a certain amount of money to play with, and certainly they, they still need more. Like I don't, I, don't, I don't think they've raised all the money for this building yet. But, okay, so you look at it and you go visit other schools and you say, is this thing that this school has, is this important? What what do recruits actually care about? What do our players actually care about? For instance, Clemson has a slide. If a slide is going to cost you a whole bunch of money, is that really that important? I, I don't know. I know there are certain things that the kids really do seem to like. For instance, the kids seem to like having a barbershop within a football and a facility. In my opinion, the football only facility needs to accomplish two things. Number one, 
it needs to have enough things there to keep your kids in the building. And this is sort of contrary to the idea of like, let's have super high character kids and all this stuff in some ways, because there's an implication there that, Hey, if you keep them in the building, they won't be getting in trouble elsewhere. And look, that's true. That's a thing that coaching staffs have told me, Hey, if we keep our kids in the building, they're not outside hanging out with, with people who are not within our program, right? They're just hanging out with, with our program. And, and coaches would love these kids to be totally isolated from the rest of campus. They, they want them there for, for football, football, football. And that's not like a Florida State coaches thing. That's just a coaches in general thing. So you need to have enough bells and whistles and uh, make it fun enough to where the kids decide they want to stay, right? And I also think this really helps improve team chemistry somewhat if you get everybody hanging out with each other and learning, growing, loving each other, all, all that kind of stuff is really important. The other thing you have to accomplish with this is that it has to be nice enough, modern enough, and kind of glamorous enough to send a message to recruits that, hey, we are committed to playing at a high level. We are committed to supporting you. You don't want your building to look cheap because then these other kids will go visit an LSU, which has a lazy river, and they'll go visit Clemson and those other schools, and they'll see okay, what those schools have. So you have to thread the needle here in some ways to where your building is comparable, even if it doesn't have to be quite as nice. Florida State is not going to win recruiting battles based on facilities if money is, an, is any kind of indicator, and, and I believe it is. But it it is important that Florida State doesn't lose those recruiting battles based on, on facilities. And I think that's what they're going to try to accomplish there. So get a building that players want to stay in and hang out in and you know just, just chill in and be around throughout the day. And get a building that shows recruits that you're serious about supporting them at the highest level without breaking the bank. Those are the discussions that are being had internally right now. Okay, final question here comes from Vishal. Uh, Vishal, thank you for being a Patreon supporter. And we're right at 30 minutes, so that's, that's about what I wanted to do today. Uh, given the additional ads from FIU and Old Miss, so that would be uh, Taylor and then, of course, Robert Scott, the uh, the, the, the flip from uh, Old Miss, the, the high school kid. Do you think we can get to average this year on the offensive line? All right, so that's the question. Um, my, my answer is, is no, I do not. Um, first of all, we don't know if, if Taylor is going to be um, an average-level player in the ACC. He was at FIU, and in that league, you really don't see very many nice defensive linemen. Uh, the, that league is not producing defensive linemen who go to the NFL. Florida State's schedule is going to be littered with defensive linemen who do go to the NFL. If Taylor can be a below-average player for this offensive line by ACC standards, I think Florida State's coaching staff would do backflips because below average at the tackle position is a massive upgrade over what FSU has had for the past two or three years. I think if, if you look at the timeline that we laid out, we said, okay, can you go from terrible to bad for last year? This year, I think the goal is to go from bad to below average. I think average is probably a little bit too much to ask. I think Randy Clements is one of the absolute best offensive line coaches in the entire nation. And he worked his butt off 
and yet you still saw what this offensive line did. And I don't think Greg Fry is a terrible offensive line coach, by the way. I think, unfortunately for for the situation, uh, the kids realized that he didn't think very much of them. And I think some of them kind of tuned it out because the message was received that they weren't Florida State quality kids. But, look, Randy Clements worked his butt off, and that the results that he got were probably not even bad. I, they're probably still closer to terrible. It, if this line is, is goes from terrible to bad this year, or from bad to a little bit less bad, it, it wouldn't shock me, right? Like I, I don't think Robert Scott is a player who's going to come in and, and contribute a lot uh, in his freshman year. So the, the flip from Ole Miss here, I'm sort of – uh, rejecting the premise of the question a little bit because I don't think he's a player who's going to be an early impact guy uh, for you. But Taylor, I think, is someone who they definitely <laughs> expect to come in and start. If they land uh, one or two more grad transfer players, then I think it's possible they could get to average this year. But the thing is, I don't believe they have the talent on this roster right now, or rather the talent and, and maturity combination and not by maturity meaning like immature these kids aren't serious but rather uh, physical maturity where they are in their career I don't think they have the talent and experience combination to produce an average offensive line in 2020 I just I don't think it's there I think a lot of these kids don't really belong on Florida State's roster so all right uh mostly a positive podcast today and then that question to end it sorry um but that's just my honest opinion on that. If they get to average, do some backflips. That that's uh, that would be a hell of an accomplishment. Again, thank you to our sponsors, Louisiana Hot Sauce, Madison Social, Resolution Home Loans, and Travis Johnson of the Metter and Johnson Law Firm. This has been Bud Elliott of the Nolcast, and we will join you with a uh, full episode again shortly. <laughs>